understand that you both are going to have to make sacrifices. And the basic concept behind all of this is for every I, there should be 99 we's in that conversation. Don't use the word I, use the word we and try to establish security and what that vision is supposed to be like and continue to keep the conversation open and keep it playful, right? And don't be afraid of revisiting that conversation. But once you do, right, and you got the back of your spouse, you have someone that's supporting you, that understands you, that's going to go out of their way to create money or like a financial, physical, mental, and time space for you to do what you do. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Derek Clifford. Derek is a successful multifamily real estate investor with a portfolio of over 250 units in two major US markets. He is also an author of Part-Time Real Estate Investing for Full-Time Professionals and host of the Elevate Your Equity podcast. He retired himself from his W-2 back in 2021, so he's got a great story to tell us. And I'm just going to shut up and say, Derek, welcome to the show. Matt, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? You know, that really is one of the most difficult questions that I've, that I've, uh, I've been posed this week, um, which lets you know what my week is like. Um, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I partial to cookies and cream, but I love mint chocolate chip too. Those are, those are like two of my favorite. Okay. So side tangent, our listeners know this, but mint chocolate chip is the answer I give to the question because when I was young, my dad said you should get mint chocolate chip because no one likes mint chocolate chip. So no one will ever ask you for a taste of it. So do you actually (laughs) like mint chocolate chip or is it the same philosophy? No, I really do like mint. Like mint is one of my favorite flavors just in general. Um, And so like I've been known to take mint leaves and just eat the mint leaves by themselves. Um, so like, I, I just love the flavor of mint. And so that mint chocolate chip is like kind of this beautiful combination of chocolate, which I also love. And then mint, which is this herbally really nice flavor. Hey, there are worse things to (laughs) like, because at least your breath just smells good all the time. (laughs) You know, if you get in a crowded elevator with Eric, he will at least have have good breath. (laughs) That's right. And the other thing too, is that mint, um, like if you take peppermint or just regular spearmint or whatever, um, it's known as like a, a nice, like a, what do you call it? It's a, it's after, after you eat a meal, it calms your stomach down. Um, mm. so it's one of those things that's just good for you. So there you go, man. You're getting it from both angles, real estate, and nutrition. That's what we're doing. Today. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Derek, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So to nowadays, uh, we are nomadic individuals. My wife and I, we're basically hopping from Airbnb to Airbnb. Everything we own on this earth currently fits into six storage bags or six like full-size luggage cases, and then drives around with us in a Honda CRV across the country. Um, we're getting ready to fly to Portugal. Um, and then we're going to spend a lot of our Europe, like our vacation and our summer time out there uh, in Europe. Uh, But outside of travel, uh, which we absolutely love, we are investing in real estate across the country, doing asset management acquisitions and capital raising for our own properties in Indiana, and then partnering up with some really good partners in Texas, in San Antonio and Austin, raising capital and helping uh, direct money into those deals as well. So we got a capital raising arm, an asset management arm, acquisition, uh, and we're doing all those things at the same time, plus running the podcast. And then, uh, of course, we have that book as well. So yeah, it's a fun time, man. 
Yeah. Barely doing anything. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I love that you're doing it all from a nomadic perspective. And I want to dig into that because I recently had a friend that left his nine to five to go work nomadically throughout the world. Um, we, I spent some time with him down in Colombia. He's headed to the Philippines soon. So I would love to dig into that. But cool. before we get there, I want to talk about your real estate journey because you didn't start off with an intentional reason of buying real estate from my understanding. So can you tell our listeners like where your list, where, where your real estate journey began? Yeah. You know, honestly, real estate was never on my radar ever. And I kind of fell into it by accident. Right. And, and honestly, a lot of great investors do do that too. They fall into it by accident. Um, what ended up happening was my wife, she purchased a condo in Washington state about, uh, was it like a month or so before the 2008 crash? So she bought a condo for like 250 grand. And then three months later, it was worth like 90 or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> And so she was there for four years and, you know, we started dating while she was in school. So this had already happened before I'd met her. Right. But, you know, by the time it it came for her to graduate, she found a residency in Northern California. So we would have to move from her condo down to the Bay area. And unfortunately, uh, in order to do that, uh, we would have to write a check because the property was so far underwater that we wouldn't be able to make up the difference. So, we didn't really have any other choice except for either stay in Washington or find a way to keep it until it appreciates further. So what we ended up doing was we put tenants in there and those tenants were awesome. Uh, and they got us our first dose of mailbox money, right? Like it was basically someone covering the mortgage, covering the HOA fees, covering the utilities, covering all of that, and then getting us a, a cash flow of like 400 bucks a month or something, right? And you know, as we're driving down, we got our first you know, mailbox money check um, electronically deposited, we were like, or at least me, I, I, the gear started turning. Cause I was like, man, you know, we did this completely on accident. What would happen if we like really gave this some effort and made it happen? Because, you know, at the time, Matt, I was kind of of the Dave Ramsey camp in like the whole wealth building thing where it's like, you got to pay down debt. Uh, and then you got to start building up, you know, buying stocks and stuff. And then eventually you get to a point where you can retire because you can live off of 4% of your nest egg or whatever the metric was, right? For for your for stocks. And so what we ended up doing was we we really dove deep into real estate investing thanks to bigger pockets and a whole bunch of free resources out there, podcasts, uh, individuals, meetups, right? Uh, and then did a lot of growing too. Red Rich Dad, Poor Dad, um, got a mindset coach and, and really kind of dove in. Uh, and then eventually started overcoming analysis paralysis because I am an engineer by training and a project manager in, at heart. So both of those you know, disciplines are very detail-oriented and need to see the whole picture before making a move. So anyway, uh, by the time we made uh, our first move, we were ready. We had saved up a whole bunch of cash to do, start doing this and we just exploded. Like our first year of acquisitions, we went to from zero to 16 units while working a full-time job. Uh, and then after that, we maxed out our number of loans, just like you probably found out and you had to switch over to multifamily because the lending, you know, you, you can only do 10 loans. Uh, so we went over to multifamily and then really started getting deep into that with joint ventures and partnerships, and then learned about syndications from uh, a, a local mentor of ours in the San Francisco Bay area. And then kind of the rest is history. We kind of just exploded and eventually got to a point where I can leave my full-time job uh, back in September because I have all these marketable skills and, you know, have this passive income coming in from our investments. So uh, really happy and very fortunate and just so grateful for 
what life has been able to provide my wife and I so far. I love it. I love it. Um, a couple of things I want to pull out there is one, you said you're an engineer and a project manager all at once. I smile tremendously because I work with IT sales and, and work with a lot of folks like yourself. And boy, does it make sense to have someone like that on your side because they will never miss a dot anywhere. So I like it. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I talk about a lot is me and my journey and hitting that 10 Fannie and Freddie mortgage loan um, limit. For that being a new concept to some listeners out there, can you describe what that is and, and tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, it's it's pretty simple. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. But basically, you know, when when you are buying a single family residence or technically anything up to four units, like they, you know, a, a fourplex is considered, you know, a private residence in the eyes of the IRS and also in the eyes of lenders. So if you are looking to purchase a property, let's say it's your private residence, you buy that and you buy a loan that's a 30-year amortized loan, which means the payment's going to be relatively low compared to what else, you know, what other things that you could pay. And you generally get the best rates because it's a private residence rate. They have something called a Fannie Mae conforming loan. What it means is that it's underwritten for Fannie Mae standards, which means it's backed by the government. So if something if, if there's a problem with a loan servicer, then it conforms with certain standards so that another servicer can purchase it. And, you know, if, if you guys are, are homeowners out there, maybe you know that you'll get a notice one day and find out that you have a new lender to pay to, right? With On your private residence. That's because everything is conforming. There's low rates. It's 30-year amortized. It's backed by the government. So it's like a, a really premium type of product because the, the lending rate is so low. Well, it turns out that you can only have 10 of those conforming loans under your name. And if you try to put an LLC on and then use one of these loans, that won't work because it only works for people that have a personal stake in it. And it can be rental property. So usually what ends up topping out is you're at one private residence, maybe a vacation home, and then eight or nine rental properties. And that's all you can do. They won't let you write any more loans. If you have a spouse that's a high paying spouse, you may be able to get 10 more loans available to you if, if they're willing to sign on to the loan and take title alongside you. So that's kind of the gist of these private or these personal uh, loans. That is one of the best explanations I've heard on it because essentially I ran into the same issues. I had scaled my single family portfolio to 10. And then I went to the bank one time with a 780 credit score, making six figures. I have all these rental properties, great investments, just great stature. And they said, no, we can't do it. And I asked why. And they said exactly that you've reached your limit and you don't fit into the box anymore. So for newbie investors or people that just wanna own one or two rental properties or an investment a vacation home, fantastic loan. Probably one of the best out there. Low rates, long-term, and the banks are really just underwriting it and selling it off so they don't really care uh, about holding it. However, if you wanna scale this thing, eventually you're gonna get to a point where you need to make that transition into larger products, such as commercial loans. And it sounds like that happened to you on your journey. Um, so mm -hmm. you mentioned like going from there into multifamily. Can you talk a little bit about the mentor that you had, some of the things that you liked about the multifamily space and things like that? Yeah, you know, um, for the multifamily space, I actually was kind of on my own when I was doing it with that before syndications. Um, when I was doing the joint ventures, right, like right after I had realized that the single family homes just wasn't going to cut it for us, um, we, we had a decision to make because we were kind of like, well, you know, if we if we go down, we can keep doing, going down the single family route by like refinancing all 10 of our loans into a business, like a, a, a portfolio loan, basically. We could have done that. 
uh, and then could keep buying single families. We ended up scaling because we knew that as soon as you walk into the multifamily business, it's one set of closing paperwork, one property manager, one roof or fewer roofs, right? One lawn, but all these units. So it's just the economies of scale there that I just couldn't pass up. So we ended up just trying it, Matt. Like we went out there and instead of getting a mentor, <laughs> my my uh, partners and I, we ended up using the same wholesaler that we were using for our single family stuff and asked him for, to source a multifamily property for us. So that's exactly what they did. And we ended up buying that thing. And we learned every lesson that you could possibly learn on that property with that first one. And then, you know, once we got that thing finally like under control, I realized that like I was running out of my own money to be able to do this. Like I could do it maybe one or two more times, but we need to be able to partner with other people who have cash and do it the right way. So that's when I started seeking my mentor. Um, and then once once I got plugged into the mentor, we were kind of off to the races after that. So, yep. Yeah. I, great explanation on moving into there. More, one door or one roof, one lawn, lots of streams of income and things like yep. that. And I had someone on the show one time who talked about they did a full multifamily deal. I think it was like 60 units or something like that all by themselves. Oh, and wow. they said it was by, by far, judging by your reaction, you know where I'm going with this, <sighs> right? Like they said, by far it was the hardest thing they ever did because finding the deal is one thing, closing the deal, due diligence, legal paperwork with LLCs, tax officials, cost segregations, all this kind of stuff is a lot harder to do, especially if you have a full-time job than most people uh, realize. And that's why for the most part, like I'm getting into the multifamily in the bigger space, but it's through a limited position and I'm building great relationships with great operators so that eventually I can become an operator. But why, right now, I mean, that's just too much for me to take on um, is, is, is that kind of what you all figured out as well? Like what was the biggest learning lesson of taking down your first multifamily deal, I guess? Yeah, man, you know, that, that first deal, and first of all, very well said, um, I think that's hundred percent accurate. I would say that the biggest learning lesson that I've learned is from that deal is to know your partners, um, because that one was a joint venture, right? And that was the intention the whole time, Matt, like I wanted to kind of cut my teeth on my own property with my own money first mm -hmm. before I start accepting investor funds, right? And as a matter of fact, we did like three or four more properties or actually five more properties as joint ventures before we started allowing other investors to come in. Um, that was just because we wanted to make sure our systems were were lined up and in, in, in place. But part of that is the network and, and knowing your partners well. And so in that first deal, we had like, there was a lot of conflict with some of the the partners internally. Uh, and it really made it mentally tough to go and face the problems that an apartment building reposition will bring. You know, like we had to kick everyone out. We had to reposition all the units. We had to redo the roof. We had to install separate electric meters. We did all of this work, right? And we did it all from afar. There was no one that was local to the market. We were all on the West Coast. So that was kind of the difficulty there, like not knowing the personalities and what's going to happen when pressure starts building, right? Uh, and that led to a lot of unnecessary tension and quite frankly, a lot of personal growth on my end too, as to how to handle the situations and how to lead. Yeah. And um, when, when I'm looking at a passive deal, there's three things I really look at, the team, the market, and then the structure of the deal. And the thing that you mentioned around the team is like, I really want to know, has this team worked together? Have they worked with a property manager? Have they worked with construction? If there's going to be a value add and things like that, because there is a team dynamic. Now it won't, it won't completely go into the no bucket if the team hasn't worked together, but I like to know that there's a track record there. That way they know what the 
the other person on the other side of the team is coming from and the value they offer. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Ben. I, I think that that's, that's one of the most important things is the track record um, and yeah. understanding, you know, uh, that the, the people that are operating this deal know what they're doing and um, they have asset management experience because that is, while it's not the sexy part of the deal, that's where all the money is made. And so you want to have good asset managers who are detail oriented. They know what they're doing and they've been in the market for a long time. Maybe find you somebody that was a former engineer and project manager. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it's, it, that would be great, but you know, <laughs> um, I want to ask a question. So uh, elevate your equity podcast is a lot of couples talking about getting on the same page and how they're doing things together. And mm -hmm. Um, typically when I'm talking to folks, you know, there's typically one person that's really gung ho on real estate investing and, and doing all that. And there's somebody else that's a little bit more conservative in nature. And there's a, there, there don't seem to be aligned. So, um, one, was your wife always on board with this? And, um, two, how do you coach people through maybe one side, maybe the male's not on board, but the wife is on board and, and that sort of thing, <laughs> man, I love this question. Everyone always assumes that I'm the one that was trying to get my wife on board to things or my spouse on board. It's completely the opposite. Wow. My wife was the one, she's like, you've got to leave your job. Like, we've got to do something. We got to do, we got to, we got to make this happen, right? Got to make this work. So in every sense of the word, my wife is very much the visionary in our business, actually in our businesses, because she has one as well. And she helps with providing team members, why we're doing, why we're working so hard, uh, whether or not this is a good partner to work with, and she helps raise capital. So I would say that if you're not tapping into the wisdom of your spouse, right, you're missing out on a huge amount of potential because not only are you missing out on someone who may want to do things that you don't like to do, they can offer you perspective when you're banging your head against a wall, right? And there's a blind spot that you can't see right? They can be there to support you. If you need to pull some extra effort or money or space or whatever you need, you need to fly out to the property. They can be there to support you behind that decision. And they can also be there to cheer you up when things are down. And then when, when things are good and you're celebrating, they can be there to help you reinforce that celebration. So I can't emphasize enough how important it is to get on the same page with your spouse, no matter what you're going to do, right? With, with investing, because I like to say this too, Let's say that you decide to move forward with real estate investing without the support of your spouse. It's pretty easy to imagine what would happen if things don't go well, right? Like, you know, let's say you try to do a flip and you end up dropping a hundred thousand and something, and then you lose half of it, right? Because you didn't know what you were doing or you moved too hastily or whatever, right? That's pretty easy to understand what your spouse is going <laughs> to do to you and the situation. But if things go well, right, let's say that you end up doing a flip or you buy a property and you end up making 50 grand off of it, most likely you're going to be spending a whole bunch of time and effort to get that delta, that $50,000 profit. And your spouse is going to look at this and be like, look at all this wonderful profit. Let's go spend it. Let's go enjoy it. And you being the budding real estate investor are going to want to reinvest everything into that and double down your time into that process. How do you think that's going to make your spouse feel, right? Without yep. her being on board. So if you, if things don't go well, that's a problem. If things do go well, that's also a problem because you've got to talk about growth and making sure you're in the same direction. So talking about vision together is super, super important. And a couple of things that I can give as far as like advice to people who are looking to do this, there's a conversation that you've got to have 
okay, about investing in real estate, but I don't recommend you listening to this podcast right now and then just having that conversation. I think what it is, is you first got to understand with intention that you want to help steer the direction of your guys' relationship or what your future looks like. So starting with an open mind to first understand what drives your spouse, asking questions that kind of under, that, that help you understand what's important to your spouse. Like, is it freedom? Is it stability? Like having your own four walls and then just having like this huge amount of cash just sitting there? Um, or is it travel? Do you guys want to just like break free and just go around and just be free spirited? Understanding that will help you frame the context of real estate investing better so that it sits more comfortably with your spouse. Okay. So that's, that's one. When you do have the conversation to sit down, make sure it's talking, you're talking about vision and future and understand that you both are going to have to make sacrifices. And the basic concept behind all of this is for every I, there should be 99 we's in that conversation. Don't use the word I, use the word we and try to establish security and what that vision is supposed to be like and con- continue to keep the conversation open and keep it playful, right? And don't be afraid of revisiting that conversation. But once you do, right, and you got the back of your spouse, you have someone that's supporting you, that understands you, that's going to go out of their way to create money or like a financial, physical, mental, and time space for you to do what you do. Okay. So that's, I think I've spoken enough, but I just want to pause there and hopefully that adds some value to you and the listeners. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I have um, failed with uh, several girlfriends in the past on kind of un- helping them <laughs> shape what I'm seeing. But mm-hmm. uh, the the idea of saying one I and 99 we's was the reason why, right? I was very excited about it. I had read the books. I had seen the the quote unquote mailbox money. And instead of saying, you know, this is how this could help us. I was focused on like my personal freedom and my journey and things like that. Um, I also did a podcast with Chris Felton that talked about, and he's the host of Couples Money, that talked about money beliefs and how we come into co- those types of conversation with previous money beliefs from our history or what we were taught in the past and things like that. What are your thoughts on just money beliefs and the money story that people tell themselves? Oh man, such a such a good question. Um, and this is on the spot for me, but I think that um, it's very deep. A lot of people learn these patterns from their parents. And I would say that the pattern that I learned, which was to control and hoard money, right? As if it was something that you have to lock up in a cage, right? And pay down debt. I bought into that uh, narrative very easily when I listened to Dave Ramsey back in, you know, when I graduated from school, because it very much conformed with my parents' view of money, right? Which was it's finite right? You only have a fixed amount of it that comes in with your paycheck and you just got to live within the bounds of your paycheck. And I think it's because money is spiritual and people, it, it, it brings a lot of emotions in. If you want to change your relationship with money and how money interacts with you and what your fate is with money, you've got to start there. You got to start with the spiritual. You got to start with the attachment, the control, because the truth is, Matt, you know, I'll just give you an analogy here. So before I left my full-time job, I was scared, right? Really scared because I was losing a great source of income. I was making tons of, I was making multiple six figures in the San Francisco Bay area. And I'm giving that up to go down to like whatever our passive income was, which was only a couple thousand a month at the time, right? 
that was a huge leap of faith for me because if I didn't live within the bounds of my paycheck, like, and now my paycheck is going down to $2,000 or $3,000 a month. Like, what are we going to do? Right? Like that starts Mm -hmm. to invoke fear and maybe in you or in the audience, if you can relate with that, but if you can shift your relationship with money to understand that if you spend money, it's going to come back. If you become a bigger person, right? If you have a seven figure mindset, you're going to have a seven figure income. If you have an eight figure mindset, it's just a matter of time, Matt, before the, the world catches up to you. So when I realized that money is controlled by mindset and by intentionality and by spirit, I know it sounds really weird, right? Because I'm the furthest person on the earth. And this is even surprising me saying this, to be honest. I'm the furthest person on the earth to believe stuff like that. But it is 100% true that when you become a bigger person, and money, you just don't sweat money anymore. It just pours in. And here's what happened. As soon as I left my job, there was like a, a month or so that I was freaking out, right? Like as soon as, as soon as all the income went away. But the next month that came by, I calmed down, right? And I was just enjoying all of this creation of, of freedom that I, was, that, that I created for myself. And I started living in this abundant life once again, thanks to my wife for pointing me, pointing out all these incredible free degrees of freedom that we've enabled for ourselves. And as soon as that happened, Matt, I got four deals in three weeks. Four deals in three weeks. And you know, we've been closing them over the last quarter, right? Um, and it's just been absolutely incredible, like that you have faith in life, right? And you have faith that um in yourself. And that there's money out there and don't just don't box it up as fear. Like don't let fear drive your decisions. It's just really, it's crazy how if you tap into the spirituality and tap into the abundance, people recognize that and they're attracted to it and they want, they want more of that themselves. And then you get all this money flowing in and then you're giving it back to people and it's flowing in and your capacity and the, the, the width of the stream of money coming in and out, right? Starts growing and increasing. Yep. And so I don't know how to describe it because this is called all kind of off the cuff. I hope this is hitting something for no, you. <laughs> no, this is really good. I, I've got a full page of notes here, but let me go through a couple of things that I wrote down. One, you said, if you spend money, it'll come back to you. I would change that just a little bit to if you invest in yourself Bingo. or invest, then your money will come back to you. Yeah, um, that's the spirit of I, it, yep. I had a conversation yesterday where someone said, you become what your dreams um, are essentially. And what he was saying is like, when you have dreams, they will move you to actions and those actions will help you become a better person that ultimately leads you to your dreams. And if you're like, I don't have any dreams, that's because your dreams are to pay bills and just do what you were, what you're doing in your day to day, maybe step, take away, take some step back, take a step back and think about what do you want to become in this life? Cause you really only get one of them. Um, and then, then the next thing I wrote down was, uh, Ramit Samit Samet, I think has a really good talk around money beliefs. And then also like, it's okay to spend money. You shouldn't be mad at yourself for spending money. What I would encourage you to do in his, his advice is to pick the categories where you're not going to feel guilty about spending money. For me, that is fitness because I'm, I'm big into Ironman athletics. So I, I'm anything with my bike or my shoes or swimming and things like that. I'm okay with vacations because I love traveling. I think that's how you evolve as a person. You truly think about 
um, uh, seeing different perspectives of the world. And then really it's food. Like, I can't tell you, Derek, how many times when I was younger, I sat at a restaurant and I was like, oh, this thing's on the menu. And I wonder what that tastes like. And I never got it because I was afraid of buying something that I wasn't going to like when in the grand scheme of things, it was only like 10 or 15 bucks. Right. Right. However, what I would say is when you do those categories that you're not going to feel guilty about spending money. You also have to put things that you're not going to spend money on in return. For me, you'll never see me driving a Ferrari. You'll never see me driving a Porsche. You'll never see me driving a really fancy car because I don't get value out of that. I spent 2% of my whole life in a car. Why would I spend a ton of money on that? Some people might. I mean, I spend that money on a, a bicycle, right? They might appreciate a car instead. Um, and for me, like when I'm at that restaurant and I decide to spend that extra money on a dish that I never heard of, but just sounds good, then I'm just not going to get alcohol that night. And that's exactly how I will pay for that. Um, so I'm curious as a guy that's traveling around the world right now, being a digital nomad has, has freed up time to go do what he wants to do. What are those things that you care about spending money on? And then what are those things that maybe you're like, ah, eh, I don't really see value in that. So I'm not going to spend money on it. Yeah. Good, good question. And I think you and I have a lot more in common here than you think. Um, because as I was listening to you talk, um, the, the theme that I picked up was health and experiences, right? Those two things. And that's exactly what resonates with us, except I would add on the travel piece. But the good news with us is that we are able to, instead of spending one mortgage, we can, our mortgage is transferable, right? We can live anywhere we want in the world. Yeah. Um, so I think for us, it's, we like to prioritize experiences because that's what, what, that's the point of life that we're in right now at this point. Um, and then we also prioritize tools uh, and employees, right? Like giving back to, to other people that can help us with our vision. So anything like that's electronic tools, like I'm a huge geek when it comes to automation and things like that. So we're always investing in education in ourselves as well. So if we're going to conferences or if we're part of mastermind groups, that's a huge deal for us. And if you look at our spend, right? Like our monthly spend for what we, what we do, obviously a large part of it is housing and transportation. Some of those basic things that you need to get around and eat and stuff like that. But really our disposable, like choosable income goes mostly to tools, employees, and also to uh, like mastermind groups and conferences. So all those things that kind of help you grow to become a bigger person, to give back more, that's where we spend our money. And that I would consider is an investment, not a spend like we were talking about before. Even what you spend with your health, that's an investment too. Yeah, I agree. And um, we're going to nerd out after this podcast because I'm I'm in the process of spending to grow the brand and to get my message out there and to help my help grow ice cream with investors and some of the things that I have a vision for as well. And so I want to pick your brain after this on that. But Sounds good. Um, I, I'm dying to ask because you are living the life of a digital nomad right now. And we were chatting before the show. I have a friend that recently left his W-2 and is doing the exact same thing. He's going to Mexico, Thailand, Philippines. Uh, he spent a, a three months down in Medellin, Colombia, which I got oh, a chance awesome. to go see him. Beautiful place, beautiful place. But what do you, I got to like, what do you expect to get out of this? What do you, what do you expect in to kind of get out of traveling all over the world? And have you had any experiences that you weren't expecting that are memorable that you kind of want to bring up and talk about? Yeah. You know, um, I guess what we're getting out of this is just like a, a, a sense of, of wonder. Um, and just like in, incredible amount of gratitude out of this. That was an un, like, that was an, an unintended consequence or unintended side effect for this. 
but generally like my wife and I, we're just trying to collect memories, right? We're trying to, and, and figure out where we're going to live. That was the other thing too, is that, you know, every point in our life, we've been pushed to a certain city because either a job is there or whatever, but now we're able to live our life in full intention. And so this is kind of like the manifestation of all that, right? Like this is our kind of like that rubber band effect, right? Where we've been stretched so long, so long for so for such a long time. And now it's let go. And now like there's this huge motion, right? Where we're just traveling all over the place um, and trying to live that out, trying to make up for all that lost time of being stuck in the corporate rat race for a long time. So as far as like discovery, um, I wouldn't say that there's too many. I, I think that the biggest discovery is that we are able to live on so much less than we think. Dude, we only have six bags of luggage and that's our entire life right now. Like this microphone I'm talking to you on and the laptop and the webcam and the other monitor that I have here, that's all part of that, right? And it's just incredible for me to think back a year ago. Right now we were getting ready to sell the house, but a year ago we had an entire house full of stuff, right? And it's all gone now. And so people underestimate what they can live without. And so I would encourage people to really think minimalistically and think about what you don't need because oftentimes less is more in life. Yeah. I, um, moved recently last year and I was like, you know what, this is the time when I'm going to purge a bunch of this stuff. And basically the same thing, I could consolidate it all into a garage and a, um, (laughs) a small little bedroom right now. But I I love that idea. And what I think too, I've noticed through that experience, but also my investment journey is that there's a subconscious part of your brain that you don't know exists, but it's always weighing on you. And what it's cluttered with are your, your worries of the world, the fears that you have of the world. And two things, one, people have a lot of things that clutter their brain. And I would encourage everybody just to clear off their desk space, have nothing on their desk and work like that for two weeks and tell me that your mind doesn't feel a little bit better or journal for two weeks and tell me that your mind doesn't free up. But also I think one of those big worries out there is money. And I wish I could figure out a way to articulate the fact that when I finally became quote unquote financially free, which means that I essentially could have all my bills paid for for the rest of my life without ever doing anything again, how much pressure that relieved from me. In 2020, when the world was going down, my stock market took a 40% dip and I watched my equities get thrashed. I wasn't really worried about it because I was always going to have income coming in and food on the table. When I saw folks around me in the, in the industry get laid off and people around the world get laid off. I didn't want that by any means, but I knew I was in a better spot if that happened to me. So um, I don't know, any any comments you want to like interject on, on just my little rabbit hole there? No, I think the only thing I'm going to say is that, and, and a lot of people who are listening to the show already know this, but I would just reemphasize again that staying with an employer and depending on an employer, right? to give you your lifeblood or to give you your livelihood of income coming in, that is just as risky as being an entrepreneur because there's almost no like loyalty anymore, Matt. Like there's people that I've known that have been with companies for 20 years and they just lay people off like any other person, right? The gone are the days where you could stick around and there's pensions and stuff like that. So everyone is technically independent contractors for each other. So the only thing that's really going to work is if you can build something for yourself that's sustainable, that's your own baby, right? Maybe doing that on the side so that you don't have to depend on an employer's loyalty to, to, for them to pay you for your livelihood. So again, I just reconsider, I'd hope that people reconsider what risk means. 
You know, like people say that going out and doing real estate on the side is risky. Well, I say that staying in a job on itself is risky. (laughs) So I just, I just want to challenge that notion there that, that what risk is. Yeah. And I would put a big asterisk on this conversation and say that if you're a, if you have a high valued skill, like a doctor, lawyer, or things like that, and, or you like your job and love what you do. Like, I love my team. I like what I'm doing right now. I enjoy technology because it's always changing and things like that. Then I'm not saying go be an entrepreneur, right? Like if you enjoy what you're doing and you feel like you're adding value and feeling fulfilled, go do that. But if you solve the money problem, you will recognize how much clutter was in your mental space thinking about money. And maybe you pick up additional hobbies or you go create or you do all that thing because you have that mental energy back to you. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Great. Great stuff. Um, Well, Derek, this has been phenomenal. I really appreciate the conversation. I want to shift this now into the five toppings. Um, Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Oh, man. So I don't want to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad, because that's what everyone probably says or what everyone should read anyway. Um, I think uh, my favorite book is Gap in the Gain uh, by Dan Sullivan, Uh, an incredible book about like how your entire life can shift in a moment. Right. And that moment is up to you. And that moment is having happening every single moment. So just love that, that what that book brings. Um, and what was the other question? Sorry. No, that's, that was the first one. Got it. This is okay. actually the 80th episode I've recorded. Um, we're a wow. year now we've celebrated our year anniversary last week and, um, congrats, book, man. Thank you. Thank you. Rich dad, poor dad was the first one that everybody recommended. And that book has quickly caught up. And I'm mm-hmm. glad you mentioned that. Cause my coach keeps telling me I need to read that in terms of, yes, how you I do. Scale. Oh my gosh. Um, it's a very close to the one thing too. So it's, yep. but I'm sure you got that one too, a lot. Yep. Well, our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day and the habits Mm -hmm. that you have. What are some of the things that you do every single day? Yeah. So I think, um, first thing is, um, kiss my wife, good morning and hug her four times a day, uh, for no reason. And let's see, uh, miracle morning is super important to me. So doing some meditation, obviously, uh, doing some scribing, uh, I'm also going through a course right now um, with one of my mentorships. So that's really important. And then I was learning Japanese uh, up until about a week ago when the borders kept closed and we had to change our plans. But I think I'm going to keep up with that. So I'll keep doing that in the morning just so that when we do go to Japan, we'll be ready. Um, and journaling, um, just really like journaling five things that I'm grateful for every day. And then how my day went yesterday. Um, I like to capture that so that everything is on the page instead of out of, instead of in my head. Yep. That's so key. And I would challenge everyone to do that activity for, I don't know, 60 days and tell me that your life doesn't feel better because you've gotten that out there. hundred um, percent. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think that the best piece of advice I've ever gotten is positivity is what will buoy your success. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Vinny Chopra, um, We've had Vinny I'm sure you, I'm sure you've yeah. had him on the show. He's Great just guy. infectious, right? Yeah. Great like guy. he, um, I learned to be positive from him from, for, for a lot of different reasons. Right. Um, I, I, I love Vinny's model. Uh, he has a great coaching program and the reason that we decided to sign up with his stuff is that he imbues positivity everywhere. 
And if you stop to think about it, if you're positive about a challenge that you're having, you're going to be able to get through it and you're going to be able to meet your goal despite the challenge. So I never was really a positive person before this all happened a couple of years ago. Um, and my life has completely changed around, right? So as far as advice goes, it maybe wasn't advice. It was just the example that I saw of positivity. Um, and so I think positivity drives everything. And if you can stay positive in the face of adversity, then you can get through anything and you can get ready to set the next goals and continue to grow. So that positivity piece is so underrated, but so important. Yeah. We're going to link uh, Vinny's show in the show notes because I agree. He was one of the first people when I started the podcast that I was like, I want to get him on just because of how infectious he really is. So I'm glad yes, you mentioned him. Absolutely. Um, our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Um, I mean, I would say that um, I've been able to escape the W-2. Um, I think that that's probably my biggest thing. Um, just because not, not because of the money, but just because of the mindset that it takes to actually do it. Uh, I went through a lot of self-work and limiting beliefs to get ready to get to that point where I could leave before a lot of people would even consider that I'm actually ready to go from a financial standpoint. Um, but we made it work. And uh, I've, I would say that facing my fears through that process is probably the thing I'm most proud of. Love it. Love it. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh my gosh. I, I'm not sure how this is going to come across with a lot of people, um, but I'm fascinated with ancient culture and I would love to sit down with uh, Julius Caesar or um, with uh, um, Augustus mm -hmm. um, Octavian, like the, 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 um, you know, the Julius Caesar's su yep. successor who like, basically turned he said that he left uh he came to rome as like a town of city of, of stone and left it a town of marble right or a city of marble um and so i think it would be fascinating to sit down and talk with all the struggles like to have such a vast empire and to have so much control like as a as a dictator um but yet also be benevolent and um, just be a, a great administrator. Like I would love to, to, to learn how that works. And I'm sure there's tons of things that he could teach us that would apply even today in this highly connected and internet, you know, age. So yeah, yeah that'd be really cool. Two different approaches to governing too, right? Julius cut his teeth in the military and was mm -hmm. really known as more of a military leader. And Octavian was more of a philosopher and understood the pol political system and how to please the people more. So two different approaches as well. Have you, uh, have you been to Rome? I have multiple times. Um, yeah. I actually lived in Europe uh, for my junior year of college in, in Munich. And so I got to see all the, Sweet. all the great spots back in 2005. So yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Derek, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you or get more information from you, where's the best place we can point them? Yeah, absolutely. The easiest thing is just to go to our website, which is elevateequity.org. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram, very active there. Instagram handle is Derek loves equity. Uh, so please look me up there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love equity, right? Straight so name. I just, I Straight had to name. do that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, definitely look me up and anywhere that you like to browse your social media or just look us up online. And we have tons of resources, including our book, our podcast. Um, we just want to be out there to, to help anyone and everyone with their real estate investing journey and unlocking those three degrees of freedom, time, location, financial. 
Beautiful. Well, once you get back from your world tour, we'll have to have you back on to hear all about it. Absolutely. I think we should have you on our podcast too, to talk about your journey as well. There you go. I love it. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.